Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. From the journey of Abraham in the Bible to the present day. Migration has always been a fact of life, but right now it's a much more emotional, heated issue than it has been in many decades. So Richard, let's look at facts as opposed to myths and at some of the things that maybe both sides of the debate are missing. What we don't know about immigration. Andrew Seeley of the Migration Policy Institute. The reality is illegal immigration has consumed the oxygen in the room in talking about immigration. What we're not talking about is most people are legal immigrants. More people come from Asia than from Latin America these days. And as a matter of fact, immigrants on average have a higher education level than native-born Americans, which is something few of us realize. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix it? it? How do we fix it? It's pretty obvious that migration is going to continue to be a huge and emotional issue in 2020. And from now until next year's election on how do we fix it, we're going to be looking at some of the big issues the candidates will be talking about, challenging misconceptions and proposing workable and, dare I say it, compromise solutions. In the migration debate, there are perception gaps. Some on one side of the argument ignore the need for border security, and sometimes that it's necessary to say no to people who want to come here. Well, on the other side, there's this view that immigration is bad and we don't like these strange people coming in, or that we can solve all our problems just by building a wall. Today, our guest is Andrew Seeley, who is president of the Migration Policy Institute, an independent, nonpartisan think tank on immigration policy. Andrew's most recent book is Vanishing Frontiers, The Forces Driving Mexico and the United States Together. Thanks for joining us here at our Manhattan studio for How Do We Fix It? Great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Andrew, you say that in the U.S. debate over immigration, that both sides misjudge each other. In what ways? I think that people who are favorable to immigration see people on the other side as anti-immigrant. And in fact, polls tell us that most Americans are actually quite sympathetic to immigrants. Most Americans are related to immigrants or you have, you know, daily contact with immigrants. So it is, that's not necessarily true. It doesn't mean there aren't people who really are deeply anti-immigrant out there, but but I, I think that's a misconception. And I, I think people who are skeptical of immigration and want to see a much tighter flow often think that uh, the alternative is just letting everyone in. 
And in fact, between these two poles, there's a lot of room for agreement. And, and most people, when you start to feel out, you know, most reasonable people, people come down in the middle about how do we make immigration work for this country, but also how do we draw some boundaries around it? Do you think part of the problem is, is you know, on one side, there is this tendency to uh, conflate illegal immigration with all, or maybe on both sides. Yes. I mean, the, the reality is illegal immigration has consumed the oxygen in the room in talking about immigration. What we're not talking about is most people are legal immigrants. Most people are coming, from, more people come from Asia than from Latin America these days. Um, and as a matter of fact, immigrants on average have a higher education level than native-born Americans, which is something few of us realize. And so that is, you know, the conversation we're having is about one sector of the immigration debate where reasonable people can disagree, but there's a lot going on that most of us miss. So much of it's emotional, isn't it? The classic immigrant is that poor peasant farmer from Guatemala who's lost his land or someone who is, is facing oppression. And we have this picture of, of the immigrant as someone who's uneducated, desperate, poor, and also doesn't speak English. Yeah, actually, we've got immigrants that are doing pretty well. I mean, almost half of all immigrants, recent immigrants to this country, have a college degree. Now, that may or may not, that doesn't mean they're programmers headed to Silicon Valley, right? I mean, they may have a history major and not speak English well enough to, to then use that in the United States, right? So there's, you know, there's often a mismatch. People end up in, in segments of the economy that are less than their education level because of that. But in, in fact, this is a, you know, immigrants are a bit of everything, right? You have the poor farmer from Guatemala. You have computer programmers in Silicon Valley and people starting their own companies. And you got everything in between. A lot of people engage in the debate in the U.S. kind of take an all-or-nothing approach. I mean, if, you know, if someone's mm -hmm. in favor of any restriction, they think they're just blanket anti-immigrant. But there are other countries, including some that are pretty close to us, uh, that have policies that are perhaps more pragmatic than ours. When you look at, at other approaches to immigration around the world, do you see some countries that are doing it better than we do? You know, it's interesting to look at other countries. No one's perfect, but I'd look at Spain, for example. Spain is, you know, right next to Africa. Spain, you know, which is the region that's growing the fastest, that has the largest number of people that want to move. Spain has actually done a fairly good job between managing its relationship with Morocco, accepting people as workers coming in, sort of trying to do a buffer, trying to be realistic about the fact that they can't stop everyone, but they can control the flow a little bit, that they have to work with their neighbors. They've actually been pretty good. And, and by the way, I would say the United States isn't bad. I mean, you know, in general, our, our, our rhetoric's terrible, but, but immigration mostly works in this country. And of course, Canada's great. I mean, we all love to say Canada's great, but Canada's got a huge advantage, which is they're an island, right? I mean, Canada has, you know, fish on three sides and us on the other. And so, you know, in the end, they're an island, right, in terms of people being able to arrive. So they're able to have more control over their immigration. But they do a great job. About one in four Canadians is foreign-born. They do a great job of integrating people into Canadian society. But you just said something which I think would surprise a lot of people. In, an, in a time when we get so much coverage about families being separated at the border, at the asylum system being changed by the Trump administration, that a lot of the mechanics of U.S. immigration, the system, they actually work quite well. Yeah, and, and it hasn't changed much under the Trump administration. Look, and, and, and wait, not to wait, say wait, there wait, are, wait. Yes. You, that runs 100% counter <laughs> to everything I've been told every, every bit the of last coverage. three years. Right. It hasn't changed that much? Our legal immigration system, which is the way that most Americans coming to the United States, has not changed that much. Now, let me put an asterisk on this. Now, things have changed at the border. Things have changed on refugees. 
things have changed on asylum, which are humanitarian streams, right? But on our work streams and our family streams, things have slowed down a little bit, but they've They've sped up and slowed down through the years. They have slowed down some visa process. But generally speaking, we're getting similar numbers of people coming in this country through the legal immigration system, similar profiles. Um, I, the, the big asterisk I put on here, in addition to refugees and humanitarian asylum, is that we're also about to see something called public charge. And public charge um, is something that allows immigration officers and consular officers to make a determination if someone may not be able to support themselves economically, they can turn down their visa application. Um, so, so until now, until very yeah. recently, um, that question of whether or not you could support yourself was not as important as it could be under these new regulations. That's right. Now, I mean, they're, they're always, consular officers have always had the ability to exclude people that they thought might overstay their visa, they thought were applying for a tourist visa but might really be coming to work. They've always had some discretion. But this asks them then, both consular officers and immigration officials, when they look at an application to do a calculation and see if the person has the means to support themselves in the United States. And it's a little bit arbitrary. And obviously, what it means is that you're going to have people making different decisions in different places, and it's obviously going to favor countries that are slightly wealthier, right, where people can prove that they have credit history and they have property. So it is likely to change the composition of the stream if this goes into effect. Let's talk about the asylum system a little bit. I sometimes get the feeling when I hear my friends talk or you listen on the news that people aren't fully aware that there's a difference between a, um, somebody who's, who, who comes over the border you know, illegally trying to sneak in uh, versus a person who comes over the border intending to make a claim of asylum. Can you just kind of walk us through it? Sure. There's a huge boom in people asking for asylum at the U.S.-Mexico border. We've seen fewer Mexicans coming across. The number of Mexicans coming to the U.S. keeps dropping, actually. So it's about a tenth or less of what it used to be. Um, and the number of people from El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala shot up. Now the Salvadorans are starting to go down, actually. Honduras, uh, Guatemala, and El Salvador are very violent countries. Uh, Honduras is in a pretty bad political situation right now. And so a number of people coming started asking for political asylum because they said, look, I'm fleeing from someone who's after me. You know, usually a gang, sometimes a politician or someone in a rival political group, and I need protection in the United States. Um, at the beginning, these were mostly legitimate claims. I would still say many of them are legitimate, probably majority even are legitimate claims. Over time, it became obvious that it was also a way for people who might not be fleeing violence to to have a pass into the United States. And so some people do make asylum claims that probably don't have very strong claims. But there's a lot of folks, I mean, I've, and I've talked to a number of asylum seekers along the way. You know, I have to say the vast majority of people I've talked to coming out of Central America, whether or not they're gonna win asylum, because it is, it's pretty hard to actually get asylum in the end, but whether or not they're gonna win it, they do have some grounds. Has it always been difficult to get asylum? Yes. Um, it was a category really created for political refugees after World War II, thinking about what happened uh, with the U.S. refusing entry to many Jews that were fleeing from the Holocaust, and thinking about the Cold War and people who were you know, trying to flee from communist rule. And so it was really that kind of political persecution. What's happened over time is the grounds have expanded because much of the violence in the world is no longer political persecution by governments. It's governments, it is political persecution by other actors, by gangs, by drug traffickers. And so we've expanded the grounds of asylum in this country and most parts of the world to think of other kinds of persecution that aren't just by the government coming after you, but other actors where the government won't step in and stop it. And that's included a lot of people in Central America. Now, your book, Vanishing Frontiers, focuses a lot on Mexico. You've lived in Mexico. 
And I'm really intrigued with your observations about how the U.S. and Mexico, contrary to public perception on this side of the border perhaps, are coming closer together in many ways and working more closely together. And you tell a story in there about uh, San Diego's need to expand their airport and how they wound up cooperating with Tijuana across the border. Can you explain what happened there? It is a fascinating story. They've ended up becoming very similar. They're both very middle class, very culturally interesting cities these days. But one of the things that happened along the way is that uh, San Diego desperately needed a new airport, and they needed flights to China and to Japan and Asia in general. And they couldn't figure out how to expand their airport, which is in the downtown. Over time, the idea started to float around, what if we start talking to Tijuana? Because they've got that great big airport, and it's right on the border. And so what they ended up doing in the end is literally building a bridge across the border fence. Um, people in San Diego, if they want to fly to Asia, they don't go to the San Diego airport. They don't have to go up to L.A. anymore. They drive down, park in a parking lot, register in the U.S. in English, and they walk across a bridge, and they catch a flight to Beijing or Shanghai or now actually Seoul or Tokyo out of Tijuana. And so the two cities, including the Republican mayor of San Diego, they see each other as as partners. Very much so. And, and actually, I have in the book, the, the Republican mayor of San Diego, who's a great guy, told me, we don't talk about two cities, we talk about one metropolitan region. Here you have a very pragmatic Southern California, mostly Republican city, but it just has this this binational relationship that's a little bit like, you know, Malmö in Sweden and Copenhagen in Denmark. And, and same thing with El Paso and Juarez. Very um, much so. I, I went to do uh, several podcasts in El Paso for the El Paso Times a few years ago. And, and they, too, have a very close relationship. In the University of Texas at El Paso, I taught a class, and half of the class had come over that morning from Juarez. And it's completely natural, right? I mean, it, it's fascinating. When you're in El Paso and Juarez, I mean, the downtowns touch each other. In the University of Texas, El Paso, under a very dynamic leader named Diana Natalicio, yeah. who just stepped down, I mean, she, she really had the idea that they had to be a binational campus. And you talk about that, what's happening in the cultural realm. And you have a great example. I used to cover entertainment a lot. What can we learn about the cultural ties between the U.S. and Mexico from the Oscars? Yes. Five of the last six directors actually to win the Oscars are Mexican. I mean, wow. that tells you a lot, right? I mean, that is, right. uh, they're actually three people, but, they're, but they've won five times. It is an incredible story. Then it tells you how integrated, I mean, one, it tells you there's great filmmakers in Mexico, which is a lovely story itself, but it also tells you how integrated Hollywood is with Mexican cinema and vice versa, how much they've, those communities have grown together and riffed off each other and learned from each other. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And we're speaking with Andrew Seeley of the Migration Policy Institute. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. 
Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I think all three of us can agree that the migration debate is too emotional. Yes. And that slogans and simple slogans are driving the day when we need pragmatic solutions to make progress, right? Yes, I think that's right. And I think you see this on both sides. I, I think this precedes Trump. Trump is not responsible for this, but he's known how to play with it very well. But, you know, the other side, too. I mean, if you look at the Democratic debates, the Democratic debates go to when they talk about immigration, they're talking about family separation. They're talking about criminalizing immigrants They're You know, the debate always comes down again to the U.S.-Mexico border. It comes down to illegal immigration, which are important issues, by the way. I mean, don't get me wrong. We, we could talk more about this. They're important issues, but they're a slice of the pie. And no one's focusing on the larger pie here. No one's focusing on the larger set of issues here. And, you know, there'll be close to a million people who have been apprehended at the U.S.-Mexico border. Up from like 300,000 right. before, So right? it's a huge jump, right? Yeah. So it's a huge jump. But, you know, there's also, a, but those are people apprehended. Most of them will end up going back. Some will actually stay because they apply for asylum. You know, you've got some people. You've got a few hundred thousand people coming in. At the same time, we'll have over a million people getting green cards. The legal system will have students. Oh, I can't remember the number of students, but it's probably another million or so students and temporary workers. You know, we have a lot of other streams that people are coming in, which are actually much bigger than, than illegal immigration flow. And it's important, I mean, both on the humanitarian side, because there are people fleeing bad situations. we got to figure out what to do with them. But there's also, you know, there's an integrity of the system question, right, which is that if you're allowing people in the legal way, is it fair to allow people in illegally? And, and you know, those are, those are real questions, but they're not the only questions. One thing that really has changed under the Trump administration is uh, refugees. Yes, that's uh, huge. The, the, the U.S. under the Obama administration increased uh, the allowance for the number of refugees, and these are people who are forced out of their homes, out of their communities by war or armed conflict of some kind. Um, the, the number of refugees allowed in now is, is much lower, isn't it? Much lower. And that's a, that is a huge deal. I mean, those are changes that matter. So about 1% of the people who are living in refugee camps or in refugee situations in the world get resettled somewhere else. 99% of people stay wherever they are. I and mean, they're not always in refugee camps. Sometimes they're in a city in Turkey or in Colombia. Largest refugee flows in the world, by the way, is from Venezuelans right now mm-hmm. into Colombia and Peru and other parts of Latin America. Um, but, you know, about 1% of those people get resettled. The U.S. was the leader historically in trying to resettle people. So it's even though it's a small slice, you know, we tend to take families, we tend to take vulnerable populations, people who are in real danger or have huge potential. And they tend to do really well in American society. One of the things we know is refugees over time pay back. You know, it is one of the groups that we know does the best, that actually they pay back what we put into them. Um, the Trump administration was worried about terrorism and the potential that some of these these uh, refugees might uh, be loyal to to terrorist ideas, and so they have really clamped down. We've gone from about 80,000, and would have been the cap would have gone up to about 100,000, 110,000. We're down to less than 30,000 this year. Let me bring up one of the more challenging elements of this, and it's a long-term argument about why we should be concerned about illegal immigration, and that's the economic argument, that when you bring in I don't know how many people are employed today who are undocumented, but let's say it's 8 million or somewhere in that ballpark, mm-hmm. um, that because they don't have the protections that legal people have, because they don't have much in the way of bargaining power, 
that they drive down wages. I mean, what we know from the studies is it does have an effect on people who have only a high school education or less in the United States. It's a small effect, but it's an effect. And it's very helpful to people who have higher incomes. So the people who can hire the gardeners, who can hire home care to take care of their children, you know, that allows second parent to work, they do really well. The the people at the lower end don't do as well. I mean, you got to do two things. One is you've got to to make enforcement work, but you've also got to create legal streams. You can't stop tides as easily as you'd like, right? We keep trying to sort of put up barriers to stop people from coming. Part of the strategy needs to be create some legal pathways for people to come in, especially from Central America right now, find ways for making the asylum system work, and then making it harder for others to come in illegally so you don't have that stream. I'm struck by how sensible and sane you are. And also how rarely we hear your kind of perspective in this debate, which is the reason why we invited you on to How Do We Fix It. We're a show about solutions. Um, Any thoughts moving forward, apart from simply taking some of the slogans and emotion out of this debate, as to how we improve the management of migration? Okay, I'm going to say something really heretical and, you know, the risk of, like, people turning the dial off here. But, I, you know, I think Trump got one thing right in his State of the Union where he said we actually have to have an immigration policy based on merit. And I think it's a, a comment worth taking into account. We should be thinking about talent. Now, I would disagree with him on what constitutes merit. I think he thinks of that as computer programmers and maybe CEOs of businesses. I think there is merit also in agricultural work, uh, talented agricultural work, in construction work in many areas. But I do think we need to think of an immigration policy where we think more about employment and where people fit into the niches in the economy, what the Canadians do really well. Um, and, and right now we have an immigration policy mostly based on family. Two is I think on the border, we both need to get tougher on illegal immigration, but we also need to be fairer on the asylum system. We need to make the asylum system work efficiently. There are ways we could do this. Reasonable people could figure this out. And unfortunately, people who don't make the cut do get sent back, but, but people who do make the cut can stay. And, you know, maybe we, we broaden a little bit the criteria. At least we go back to where we were in terms of, of being generous on who gets in, but we're, but we're quick on returning others. Um, and, and then we need to be um, thinking about how we integrate people into this country. I mean, in the end, the success of immigration is how well people are integrated. And that is actually less a question of immigration policy than it is in education. It's in health care. You know, it's in how communities and cities respond to people. And I think it's where some of our greatest successes are in this country. I mean, what we know is actually people integrate pretty well in the U.S. You also mentioned the idea of figuring out a way to to cope with the 11 million or so people who are here illegally currently. But how would you see this two-pronged approach work, a path to citizenship plus a, a enhanced uh, restrictions on, on unauthorized immigration? I mean, there you have to think about, you know, on one hand, an earned legalization, right? People have to earn it in some way. They have to show that they've worked that they, or that they, if, they were, if they were in the home, because you also have to accommodate the fact that some people, particularly women, are in the home. But if they've been, you know, doing something productive while they're here, they have a clean record, they're contributors in, in the community, they can over time become at least a legal resident. There are two big groups that are fairly easy to legalize. One, one group are the DREAMers. Um, who, who have protection right now, sympathetic group, about 600,000 people, large chunk of the 11 million, small but, a, but important chunk of the 11 million people who came as minors to the United States. There's also a group of people who've married American citizens but are disqualified for a variety of reasons from becoming legal. 
And, and we think it's somewhere between a million and two million people. Yeah, that's who, a big group. It's a big group of people. So there are small changes you could make that would begin to get you some people into the legal system. And, and what people want is legal status. They don't want citizen. I mean, they'd love citizenship. But, you know, but the most important thing is the legal status. And so, I mean, I think you have to be practical about that. And on the other side is you have to look about look at some sort of employer sanctions for people who hire those that don't have authorization to work. And that's, we've always stayed away from that. We distrust big government, you know, and you have to look also at controls at the border, but really the real control has to be in the workplace, which is, you know, if we can, and that's a reasonable compromise, if we can take people that are in the shadows and bring them over time into, you know, start, and I start with the kids who have DACA, by the way. I mean, those that's an obvious sympathetic group for the, everyone. The dreamers. But, but right the on. dreamers, but, yeah. but we want to make it broader than that. I mean, we ultimately don't want a population of people leaving here illegally, then also we got to make it harder for people to come illegally in the future and to be able to work. And, and we haven't done either of those. Jim, I think we've managed to do a fairly positive and constructive look at, at, at something which people are screaming about. This, this is the apotheosis of an episode of how do we fix it? Sensible thinking where the views of both sides are taken into account. And some, so what I take is, as a... Um, uh, kind of fact-based policy suggestions. So um, Andrew we love Seeley. shows like this. Thank you very much for hey, joining thanks us. thanks for having me on. Real and pleasure. I, and I got to use the word apotheosis. It's <laughs> a great word. I'm going to have to use that sometime. <laughs> so, Jim, I'm old enough to remember the boat people. And this was in the, the late... 1970s, mid-1970s, after the, the collapse of, of the Vietnam War, when hundreds of thousands of desperate Vietnamese often crowded into refugee camps in Hong Kong and elsewhere, desperately came to this country, and there was a terrifically heated debate about them and, and whether we should let them in. And, we, and the United States did let a, a very large number of Vietnamese people in. And look what happened. Yeah, th that group has performed dramatically well in American society and become you know, major contributors to our, to our modern life. Back in those days, it was the Democrats who were more anti-immigration. Right, exactly. Uh, and I, what I think is really important about Andrew's perspective is there are actually grains of truth on both sides in this immigration debate. Illegal immigration is a legitimate problem. That Again, that used to be a Democratic position that it's not good for union workers, it's not good for poor people, it's not good for minorities and the less educated to have a lot of competition from undocumented workers. That argument seems to have kind of gotten lost, but I think it's one that is worth remembering. Uh, and But on the other side, I think the... the that we need to be a humanitarian country. And when we perceive that there is lack of compassion or, or, or cruel tactics being used at the border, that those are, those are important issues. I kind of feel like when I hear a lot of the Democratic candidates fighting with each other to get to, to, get to everyone's left on immigration, let's, you know, let's, 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 let's disband ICE. Let's not enforce well, any immigration I, I, laws. I think it's bad politics. I think that, that yeah. if they continue to do that, they will lose a lot of votes or, and people who otherwise would support a Democrat for president against, against I mean, Trump. It's a bad policy to say, oh, let's 
just not enforce a law because you, I was talking about incentives earlier, you're creating an incentive for more people to break the law. You have to sympathize with these people trying to come across the border, but is it really humane on our part to set up a system that rewards people for dragging their children through dangerous areas and deserts and, and exposing them to traffickers and everything else to try to get into our country because, because we're not enforcing the, the law very well? That's not really good for anybody. That's true, and I agree with you, but also when you do have very long backlogs and you're trying to sharply restrict the number of uh, people coming into the country overall, then you can see why some people get desperate. I don't think that more rapid processing of green card applications would, would necessarily change that. I think this is economic migration for the most part, not enforcing the law or having extremely porous system where people overstay visas or cross the border is it creates a backlash and it creates a two-tier society that's not healthy so we need to be more efficient and more humane yes 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 exactly it's how do we fix it i'm richard davies and i'm jim meggs and our producer is miranda schaefer who does a great job every week of of editing us and making us sound better and we are a production of and Davies Content. <laughs> what were you going to say? And she's both efficient and humane. <laughs> Absolutely, she is. <laughs> and we're a production of Davies Content. And we make uh, podcasts for companies and nonprofits. Check us out at DaviesContent.com. And we're on Patreon. We are on Patreon. And we must have a, another appeal, another Patreon appeal coming up shortly. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's stamps.com, code PROGRAM.